Welcome to our very first episode of the Below Z Level podcast by Zenith. Um, so April 2nd marks our very first anniversary, and we decided that there was no better way to celebrate than to launch our very own podcast. So hello, I am your host, Rachel, the founder of Zenith, and today I am joined by two of my least favorite people in the world, uh, Ananya, my fellow co-founder and cho- a chocolate milk enthusiast. Hi. And Marcos, one of our writers and someone who enjoys playing the guitar in mid-conversation. Hello. Um, and so we are recording this episode on March 31st. And to start off the podcast, we'd like to bring up some interesting things that happened on this day in history. So I'll start off. Um, in 1685, March 31st, um, classical composer Johann Sebastian Bach was born. I don't know. I feel like Bach's music, like generally, I use it to improve technique, but that's honestly it like it's so difficult it makes everything hurt honestly i think like from a from a technical point of view it's some of like the more advanced classical music out there especially some of the fugues where you have like the bass line and the melody at the same time but i think sonically speaking and more like aesthetically in terms of the music itself it's not something perhaps that is as appealing as say schubert or chopin yeah And yeah, the romantic era, I was just about to say that, like, you know, one of the reasons why it's so difficult was um, that the dynamics was less, you know, um, uh, was less flexible than in the romantic era where, you know, uh, composers had more leeway in terms of, you know, how they would play their piece. Um, But back in the day, um, it was a bit more clinical, a bit more, you know, structured. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why his music is extremely good for, you know, trying to improve your technique, like you guys mentioned. Um, Mm. Who wants to go next? Well, I think chronologically, if we go now to 1889, um, this was the day where the famous Eiffel Tower was officially sort of like released or (laughs) opened. Um, So the engineer... Uh, last name of course Eiffel um, climbed the Eiffel Tower and placed a flag on top and it's now what we know today as the Eiffel Tower perhaps one of the most iconic landmarks in France and I'd argue in the whole world I've never been but I've seen it so much it's it's really everywhere but I think like you're you're right it's it's a very iconic piece of infrastructure I'd say it's you know one of those symbols of love I don't know if I'm you know, like reaching yeah, yeah. if I say that, but you know, just I don't the whole know. Movie. I went there. I, I, I've been there before. And honestly, it's like, um, it's, it was, I feel like it kind of is a symbol of love, but at the same time, it was so crowded there. It didn't yeah, really true. feel like. Also, did you know that, um, or at least from what I've heard, the, if you were to take the entirety of the world's gold and like all the gold that we have found now and, and sort of made it into a big cube, You'd, you'd be able to fit it underneath the Eiffel Tower like perfectly, which at the time I was kind of like, that's kind of disappointing. Like that's not that much gold if you think about it. But then when you realize how big the Eiffel Tower is, you're like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> um, Anania, would you like to hit us with the last fact? Yeah, so uh, on this day uh, in 1945, it is estimated that Anne Frank passed away. Um, 
If you don't know her, she's from the Holocaust. Yeah, and, and she, she has a book. She became popular um, when her diary was released to the public. Um, uh, and yeah, that acts as a segue to the topic that we're actually going to be discussing today, which mm-hmm. is political correctness. Um, because I feel like within our generation, you know, I've heard people make jokes about the Holocaust. I've heard people make jokes about the Nazis. Um, and I feel like it's brought up such a big debate about, you know, what is too far in terms of making jokes? What what kinds of things can you say? Um, and, you know, uh, is this a breach of our freedom of speech? Um, it, do we um, try to defend freedom of speech over, you know, um, caring for the feelings of others? So today, that's the big topic that we'll be discussing. Um, yeah. And we uh, I'd like to start off by just giving a bit of a background um, on political correctness and how the term came about and what exactly uh, it means. So political correctness or um, PC um, is how it's referred to sometimes is a term used to refer to language that seems intended to give the least amount of offense, especially when describing groups identified by an external marker such as race, gender, culture or sexual orientation. So an example of PC culture in action is um, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, who once said people kind instead of mankind in a speech um, because the term mankind was supposedly uh, leaving out women and excluding women. Uh, do you guys have any other um, applications of PC culture that you've seen in real life? Like Latinx. um Things like on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead of saying Latino, Latina. So it includes people of all different gender orientations. Yeah, so you have like the degendering of certain romance romance languages. But you also have, I mean, PC culture manifests itself in all forms of communication or getting your ideas across. So you even have um, examples in comedy. For example, comedy is one of the, I, I think, one of the industries or rather one of the forms of entertainment that has been hit the worst, I'd say, by um, PC culture. Not not necessarily the worst, but it's felt the full force of uh, PC culture. I'd say, for example, you have comedians, um, very outspoken comedians, like for example, um, Ricky Gervais. And oh, now yeah. he's 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 a he's a comedian who really doesn't um, he doesn't mind crossing the line to the point where, for example, there's a joke that he made, I think, almost intentionally to spark some sort of PC outrage where he um spoke about saying he basically he the premise was that if he had a child he would um punt it across the room as if it were a football if it were to start crying but the whole premise (laughs) from which he built that joke was um the fact that he never wanted children and so he basically said he was using this sort of metaphorical imaginary child as an example but then of course the media um jumped on his back and started tearing him apart with headlines like Gervais wants to punt child and then they were quoting him, taking it out of context. So I think that is a pretty solid example of where comedy or at least some form of media itself has come under attack or under the effects of PC. Yeah, definitely. I feel like you're right in the sense that comedians now try to be a bit more mindful of the jokes that they're making. And Mm. it seems to be that there's this unspoken rule of the things that you can and can't joke about. You know, there are um, 
for an example, if you're not a part of a certain marginalized group, then, you know, you have no right to be speaking on their issues or making a joke out of it. And so, yeah, exactly. um, I feel like within our generation, there is a great divide between people who don't care at all, people who, you know, will continue to make offensive jokes and people who are sensitive to it and try to enforce it within, you know, um, their peers. Um, I, I guess I I feel as though it's become a point of division um, mm-hmm. within our generation and, you know, um, interactions surrounding PC culture have become increasingly aggressive and hostile, um, mm. which I think is no space for, or it's not a space that would foster good conversation and, you know, understanding between, mm. um, b- between peoples. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think, I think the important thing is like, I do think that the kind of disparity that like is kind of displayed between, um, all these like people, you know, people who like edgy humor and people who don't, um, I think it's all about like finding like the balance because I think there is a place and time for everything. Mm-hmm. So sometimes these two sides kind of need each other almost. It's like a, uh, a dichotomy, if you will. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think there's also um, something to be said about the the word itself and the way in which it's phrased. If you if you look at the word itself, political correctness, um, the very logic behind the statement, some, with something being politically correct, suggests that something is therefore politically incorrect. Which, if we look at it from a sort of Western democratic worldview, dictates that nothing democratic can be correct nor incorrect because it reflects the opinions of the people. So I think the this, this, the word itself and the way it's phrased is sort of dangerous in the in the sense that it says that something can be politically incorrect and therefore something that you shouldn't be shouldn't be saying in a democratic scene, which is a very cloudy line between sort of authoritarian control of speech, for example, like of course the stated the often recited case of the Orwellian world in 1984 where speech is regulated and things are supposed to be said in certain ways it's um it's sort of eerie how close when you think about it political correctness can get to that and it's a very thin line between it being respectful words and sort of controlled uh, vocabulary yeah interesting that you bring that up because you know Generally, what is regarded as the purpose of political correctness seems to be basically, um, according to this article, rooted in a desire to eliminate exclusion of various identity groups based on language usage. You know, because I think that language is such a big part of the ideas that we have in society. Language is the pillar and foundation of ideas. You know, um, in 1984, uh, Newspeak, the language that... Um, was in that dystopian world basically took away ideas by erasing them from language. And so um, I guess this is the same thing. I'm not saying that it's of the same extremities um, and it's being overly controlling, but I guess in principle, it's the same where um, the way you use your language can change, you know, your values, um, how other people feel. Yeah. 
Mm. Basically, the um, the relations you have with other people and the way that you operate in society, you know, your language dictates a lot of that. Yeah. And when I say Orwellian, I don't mean that the world we live in now is is an Orwellian world. I think it's far from that in many places. Um, but I think that Orwell and particularly a lot of dystopian literature does serve as a an exaggerated or um, a sort of hyperbolic warning to what can be. And obviously not necessarily saying that we live in the world of 1984, I think it's far from that. But um, what Orwell and people like Huxley as well um, would have been potentially warning us was that it doesn't take that much to go down that path. It just takes a slow set of small events for us to eventually get there. And before you know it, we could be there. And I think that's also one of the points of contention about PC uh, culture is that it could end up becoming a slippery slope to, um, I guess, language control and the loss of freedom of speech. So uh, what do you guys think about that? I I definitely I do think that uh, freedom of speech is a big thing, especially in like the Western world. Um, Freedom of speech is, you know, something that is very much wanted. But. I think sometimes, though, um, the bad part about having freedom of speech is that you can do things that are, mm, I would argue, yeah. objectively bad or like say yeah. things that are objectively terrible. And th- I think that kind of comes into play with PC culture, because I think at the very baseline, that's that's like the like the very kind of base stigma is what we're trying to remove with PC culture. So it's kind of like, um, what's it called? I think it's like linguistic determinism, um, mm. or something like that. Mm. So, yeah. you know, limiting the language is like lim- limiting worldview. So if you, but if you like limit the language such that it's only like the negative parts yeah. that are kind of cut out, then you won't be able to convey the negative messages. Yeah. But then again, you know, you could the positive things could also be removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you can also like, you know, responding to that, who decides what is the negative and what is the positive, yeah, exactly. you know, in this situation? Because mm. us as humans, I I think we all have our own perceptions of what is moral and what is immoral, and you know, not everyone's going to agree on if something is offensive or if something isn't, especially as we've lived very, you know, um unique and individual experiences in our lives. And so um, I I think that that is really the whole point of this discussion is, you know, who is to decide um, what is what can be said, what can't be said um, and what are the implications of this? And do you think people Mm. would respond well to it? Yeah. So going back to what Ananya just said about um, linguistic determinism and the regulation of speech to the degree that it limits hate and more specifically hate speech in general. um, I think the question is, is it just as simple as therefore allowing total freedom of speech and therefore just having this hate speech and having the more negative side of um, of people's opinions come to light? Is it as simple as it being a payoff? is essentially the question I'm asking. Can we can we be certain that freedom of speech is the the best thing or is it a small regulation, but then is the regulation something that is worse than the deregulation itself? 
Yeah, and and I think that it's interesting that you bring up the whole concept of, you know, um, is freedom of speech even the best thing? Because I think that, you know, um, we we always think of freedom of speech um, as a good. You know, we we always think that freedom of speech is is something that is a human right, is something that we all deserve, and is something that is for the betterment of society. Uh, betterment of society. However. I feel like at, at times we fail to realize that that's a lot of power that you're giving people. That's a lot of power that you're giving people to say things that are not necessarily, you know, um, you're basically giving people the power to incite hate and to incite um, just division between groups. And, and also mm-hmm. you're, you're giving, you're giving people the power to verbally discriminate against others, which, which I think is, you know, the, the big uh, payoff of, having freedom of speech, uh, of speech but at the same time you have to think you know like you mentioned uh, about regulation how mm. is that going to be plausible i suppose because we can't necessarily you know i feel like speaking is such a if it if it were if it were going to be regulated that would be such a huge i mean i'm talking logistics but a very very difficult process yeah. Yeah, um, and would also be mm-hmm. I feel like extremely difficult to legislate, you know, the regulation of speech. Yeah. But I think that's like where like the role of, you know, society kind of comes in just because you, you'll you notice like so many people, especially the younger generations, our generation specifically, like, you know, we are the ones calling people out on, you know, any sort of like verbal prejudice that they may accidentally or purposefully say. And I think because of that, because of the fact that there's so many members of society doing this one thing and it is so it is so subjective you know offense is something that is so subjective that some people might take it quote unquote too far right um i i do think that's kind of interesting though like who like in terms of you know regulation because we at at this point we're like the only ones who have to like regulate each other yeah and then I think that links very well in terms of um, what you were mentioning about people doing it themselves as the whole uh, sort of cancel culture that we have nowadays as well. But then again, what you also see in cancel culture is um, people, obviously, like you said, it's being it's subjective. So what people, some people may deem uh, cancelable, I suppose is what you could say. Some people, some people would deem it not cancelable. So I think, again, it's so. Because language is something that's so um, subjective as to how you interpret it and as to how you um, take offense or take a lack of offense to something. And it links back to what Rachel was saying about how we've all lived our own individual and unique experiences and therefore respond differently to what people say. So it's hard to have a concrete uniform way of eliminating hate number one because people interpret hate in different ways and number two because how can we how can we solidly identify hate as a as an objective thing that being said um i guess that's more on the lines of moral relativism and you know um understanding and perceiving different you know different things in different ways however Mm. you know i'm a firm believer in you know there being some sort of moral law in the sense that there are things that are objectively just wrong. Yeah, like unspoken um, rules almost. Yeah, and so 
I guess that's where the difficulty comes in, because if you go on the lines of moral relativism, then the argument on, you know, regulating freedom of speech becomes uh, it's it's way more complicated. Um, But when it comes to having this understanding of, oh, but these things are objectively wrong, I think that they're wrong under all circumstances, um, no matter who you are, no matter what, you know, individual experiences you've lived through. Um, are wrong, then that's where I think being PC works out, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And then I guess but the problem I, all comes in with, yeah? Sorry, I just like, in terms of like that, um, it, it just kind of like, it made me think about how there are some people who know what they're, who know that what they're saying like are wrong, like is wrong. Yeah. Like they know what they're saying is just incorrect. But they'll still say it to like trigger some sort of response um, from people who are, you know, consider themselves to be PC to some extent. So I feel like that's that kind of like also like ties in with what you were just saying um, with like, even though, you know, there might be some unspoken rules. I think there are still some people who are bound to break that just for the fun of it. And where do those people kind of fit into the equation? And how do you deal with that? In terms of that, I think, and this is what I was also thinking as Rachel was talking about how um, uh, sort of moral subjectivity and objectivity can be taken to two extremes. One thing that you can always identify in sort of these like contentious issues is um, more from a sort of sociological standpoint, human nature in general, how people take ideas and take things to the extreme. And given sort of the proportion of population that we have, there is bound to be a set group of individuals by rules of sort of normal distribution that take ideas to the extreme. I think the problem arises from people who have, who take, for example, moral subjectivity to the extremes and people who take moral objectivity to the extremes, whereby they say, okay, this, this is wrong, this is right. And then when you apply that to something as sensitive and as fundamental as speech, that is when the real issue arises because then you have one person with oh, a very yeah. stubborn set minded um idea dictating what you can say and what you cannot say and on obviously on the other side if you had someone who's a bit lackluster in what they deem to be good and what they deem to be bad you have there an, an, another very blurred line between what is good and what is bad and therefore what you can say and what you can't say yeah that's a very good point and also something i'd like to bring up about what Anania said was that there are some people who know that what they're saying is wrong, but they'll say it because they want to provoke other people. Mm. And I think yeah. that that is the case with a bunch of people in our generation is that, you know, they, they're hesitant to, I guess, um, to, to following um, or no, they're hesitant to be sensitive towards the, feelings of other people regarding what they're talking about they think that it's policing what they can and can't do and therefore reject it by by going to the extremes and saying things that i don't think they mean but um they do out of the out of spite if that makes sense yeah yeah i think i think yeah i think policing is something important to talk about because it brings up the idea of therefore if we are policing words and we're policing language and what can be said and what can't be said who does that who de- who determines who has that authority who has that power over is it is it a the state is it b the people is it 
see uh, the leader of a country yourself. above the state? Or is it, yeah, is it yourself? I mean, you know, if we're doing a quiz, like, what is <laughs> what is the answer to this question? And I don't think there is one. And that, again, plays into the, the issue of why the idea of ha- having something be politically correct is so dangerous because then you have someone determining what is politically correct and politically incorrect and therefore that's when it just all starts starts to slide that's the big dilemma essentially that's the big yeah that's the big that's like the stone that's the stone inside the avocado like once you get into the avocado and you get you get to the stone and then you nearly cut your thumb off yeah that's where we that's where we're at with the political correctness issue at the moment um, I'm not a big fan of avocado. Um, I just, I just don't like the way it tastes. That might not have been the best analogy, but we'll go with it. No, but like, I still want to focus on the conversation of avocados. I just hate how they're included in sushi. I just think that it's, it's they are. That's a thing. Yeah, there are some. I mean, it was more of a. I mean, not traditional Japanese sushi, but like a westernized. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you wouldn't find it in proper sushi. Apparently yeah. it imitates the the texture of fish fat, which I get, hmm, I still don't see it. I still don't like avocados. Anyways, um, going back to the conversation. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about, <laughs> uh, linking to avocados and PC culture, I wanted to talk about the effects of... Um, the effects of like PC culture in the future, because I do think that sometimes we do see, um, like for example, let's, let's just take a part, a subculture of PC culture would be, which would be like, I guess, cancel culture. Yeah. Cancel culture. You see people, uh, like we talked about before, like getting canceled for like the weirdest thing, like really like the weirdest, most minimal things, like minimal, like slip ups, which I'm sure like those people canceling have also done before in their life um but you know uh eventually like what like to what extent like how far is that going to go and how is that going to like affect uh what i think is really important um you know just in life in general is the kind of idea of telling stories because for example like i've seen this before where um artists of a certain race they'll be like prohibited from drawing um artists drawing people of another race or portraying them in their artwork because that would be considered racist yeah, yeah. Um, i know what yeah. you mean because like storytelling is such like an integral part of not only like growing up and just learning in general but also like how you interact with other people like the stories you tell people about your own experiences and you kind of have to like step on more eggshells nowadays in terms of how you say things and what you say but I think it goes both ways regarding um, cancel culture, because, yes, there are periods, uh, there are times where people are canceled for really small, minuscule things that, you know, really don't make sense at all. But at the same time, you know, it, this has caused people to kind of start this narrative that cancel culture is toxic, cancel culture is bad for society. Mm. So when in situations yeah. where people should be legitimately deplatformed for things that they've done wrong, people will respond by saying, oh, well, I hate cancel culture. Cancel culture is horrible. You know, we should just uh, growth, whatever, whatever. But there are some people that really deserve to be deplatformed. 
So, you know, for, for, yeah. for, for yeah. doing yeah. really bad things. So I think that that's one of the main things. Um, and the second yeah. thing that I would like to say about what you said, Anania, was how um, the people canceling sometimes have done the things themselves. And another big part of PC culture is the whole level of, I guess, um, the way people carry themselves is really sanctimonious where they hold themselves to a different standard than they hold other people to um, in terms of morality. We judge ourselves based on the, our yeah, intention. I feel like the plain way to phrase that would just be, it's like hypocrisy, like just pure hypocrisy sometimes. I yeah. mean, obviously there's, I'm sure that there's some people who uh, actually do, you know, act the way that they want others to act. But, mm. you know, we do see think, it a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, like what Rachel just mentioned about how, PC culture itself um, can be as much a benevolent force as it can be uh, a malevolent force. And I think in that way, PC culture, like most things, is a double-edged sword. And it really depends on how you use it and who is using it and who is um, behind the computer, so to speak, when they're uh, sort of prohibiting what is said or cancelling someone. And in that way, it's again, it's the liberty that is given in the phrase itself and in the definition of political correctness and i think that's that's really where the fundamental side of the issue comes around as we were discussing earlier sort of the ambiguity of what is hate what can be said and what can't be said we'll always go back to this but i think that's it really is what is at the core of this uh, this issue and i think that summarizes it well that it I don't think we'll ever come to a proper conclusion about no, no. PC culture and about political correctness. No. I don't think we'll ever have an answer. I don't think there is a right answer because I, I think that society is really great in terms of, um, I don't mean amazing when I say great, but I just mean large, incredibly vast. <laughs> and so yeah. um, it encompasses, uh, society is not great, but it encompasses a lot of different cultures. Um, and I, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we all have our own individual experiences, even within similar cultures. We have our own interpretations of things. We have our own, you know, um, traumas. We have our own um, uh, senses of humor, I suppose. Mm. And we'll never be able to come up with something that everyone is happy with. And so, yeah, I guess that's really just the moral of the story. Um, I think, yeah, the moral of the story is as long as you treat others with the respect that you'd like to be treated with and you generally approach people with a goodwill and an open mind and just just a happy, you know, intent. I think that's the, the way we we progress with this. I think that's just the way just, forward. Yeah being kind to other people and being understanding exactly. but at the same time you know i feel like we all have to recognize that the world doesn't revolve around us and so there will be things that other of people course. do that will not be to our taste and be to our standard however we cannot really um that we will never reach a utopia where everyone will be happy with what everyone else does so yeah. Well, utopia in itself is is impossible because the word is uh, the origin of the word utopia means no place and dystopia means this place. Just a little fun fact there. So utopia so, um, cannot exist. Mark, I've noticed that Society. you really love breaking down words uh, and breaking yeah, down. Yeah, I phrases. really like I really like etymology. It's really fun. 
Um, and yeah, I guess that summarizes um, our whole discussion on PC culture and political correctness. Uh, and so to yeah. wrap up this episode, we'd like to just do something fun and recommend you guys um, some of the things that we've been enjoying this week. <laughs> um I would like to suggest that everybody reads a book called Tuesdays with Mori. And I think it, it fits in nicely with um, what we're talking about today in terms of how you can learn to respect others and uh, sort of bring perspective in your life in terms of your, it's not like an egocentric world where you are the center of the universe and everything revolves around you. I think you have to understand that everything that you do and everything that you say affects the people around you and just learning to treat others with compassion and care and kindness, I think is one of the most valuable things you can get from anything. And I think yeah. Tuesdays with Mari is a book that does it so well and in only 200 pages. So if you have a short attention span, it's very simple English. It's very nice. It's very colloquial, very conversational, a beautiful book in general. So I highly recommend. It is fantastic. I just yeah. read it this week. Um, yeah. It's so cute. Um, so <laughs> uh, I would like to suggest a song um, which I've been obsessed with for like the past two or three days. Um, it's by, it's like a throwback song um, by Avenged Sevenfold called A Little Piece of Heaven. I think this links in with the PC culture thing because um, I won't actually say what the lyrics are about, but they are, it is very, very uh, disturbing, but it sounds really good. And I do think it, to some extent it does kind of like link in with the conversation of, you know, mm, uh, yeah. expressing uh, like freedom of expression through art, like PC culture and how that affects that. Mm. I feel like our discussion today has been extremely introspective and really deep and thought-provoking, which is why I would like to recommend a song that I consider really thought-provoking and introspective um, called Innuendo by Queen. And, mm. you know, it has a specific yes. line. It says, um, surrender your ego, be free to yourself, which I think is really kind of um, a very poignant phrase uh, and uh, that that could be applied to the situation. Uh, and it yeah. also has an amazing guitar section. Yes, so, the Spanish um, guitar section is unmatched. It's, it's incredible. Top mm -hmm. tier. Mm -hmm. I, I would describe the this. All, I mean, song. It's, not, it's not really an easy to listen the first time you hear it, but it, it, it's no. Like how I describe it is that it's, it's existential. Like if Bohemian Rhapsody had like a third cousin that was. <laughs> yeah 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 a Not spanish third, third cousin, cousin like hispanic hispanic bohemian rhapsody that you didn't know you had in your family yeah um yeah but it's a really great song and you guys should listen to it it is mm. pretty long though it's um six and a half minutes so oh, I you're in for forgot to mention oh my gosh the avenged sevenfold song a little piece of heaven that's eight minutes long but i swear yeah. it's every but minute it's worth, is worth it. it it's, worth it. it's yeah. so worth so, it it sounds <laughs> fantastic it? One short book and two long songs exactly. uh, <laughs> to make up for the short book, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that wraps it up. Thank you so much for tuning into our first episode. Um, happy one year anniversary, Zenith. Yes. Um, and enjoy your day. And hopefully you took away something from listening to our podcast. Yes. Thank you very much. For yeah. Tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>